listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. For some of us, this podcast is about to get scary. The oldest millennials, wait for it, are hitting 40. Now, that's a wake-up call for me, and I hope for one or two others out there in the industry. And equally startling is a new study for B2B marketers, which forecasts 75% of Australia's professional workforce will be under 40 and classified as beaters by 2025. We'll get to more detail on this beta group shortly, but essentially, they're global and becoming increasingly influential in B2B purchasing decisions. The problem or opportunity for, for those that are savvy, however, is that they're doing pretty much everything differently to their predecessors. And in B2B marketing, it's getting pretty serious. Brands and personal brand for beaters is really big. How they research and why they put vendors in their consideration set is vastly different. They're more activist-minded. They're the first demographic to hit leadership positions as digital natives, and they blur the boundaries more than any other between personal and professional life. In fact, as we'll hear today, beaters are forcing B2B marketing to become more like B2C marketers. So what does all this mean? Today's stellar lineup of B2B marketing leaders is about to unpack this 10-country study commissioned by LinkedIn's B2B Institute and GWI. Australia, by the way, is surprisingly more conservative on some fronts than their global peers in the study. So let's get to it. With me today is Lucy Green, a New York-based British futurist and founder of Light Years, Ray Kloss, Director of Marketing at Cisco ANZ, Samantha Cunliffe, Managing Director of Merkel B2B, and Lara Brownlow, Head of Agency and Channel Sales at LinkedIn. Welcome to you all. I'm really interested in this one, and we're going to get deep and fast and, and sort of get some understanding of what the hell's going on with these very worried about these bloody millennials being 40, by the way. But Lara Brownlow, give us the, give us the speed dating version on, on what this research on beaters is telling us. Who are they and how are they behaving so differently to the establishment? And welcome, Lara. Thank you, Paul. So good to be here today. Uh, I shall do my best now to give you the speed dating version of this research. Yes. So this is a pretty unique global B2B research that looks at the changing behaviours and attitudes of the first cohort of digital natives that have now become business decision makers. By that, we're talking 20 to 40-year-olds, roughly. Um, so that's the top of the Gen Z audience all the way to the top of the millennials. Um, and look, we know that marketers have been obsessed with tracking this millennial audience from a consumer point of view, but never have we ever really stopped and kind of acknowledged the fact that, hang on a second, these guys are almost 40 now and they've actually become key business decision makers. So this is really exciting. Um, the research was commissioned by the B2B Institute, LinkedIn's global think tank, and run by GWI across 17,000 professionals. It ran um, across 40 sectors and in 10 markets, which included Australia, India, Japan, and Singapore. The cohort has been coined the betas, as you mentioned. This name is inspired by the notion where disruption and entrepreneurship have become a religion. It echoes the script's focus on self-improvement and being in constant beta. I'll give you the very quick snapshot of the acronym, what the acronym stands for. So 
Let's kick off. The B. The B stands for blurred boundaries between work and home. And this was absolutely fueled by the pandemic, but was in play long before that. Beaters are working late and putting in overtime. Eight in 10 do this. And nine in 10 are checking emails outside of work hours. There's also a massive blurring here of technology um, that they use for both personal and professional use with apps like Teams and Zoom, WhatsApp, LinkedIn. There's really no off button. So the E stands for evolving. For the betas, their work is their life. Their identity is definitely defined by professional status, personal brand, and this continuous self-evolution. The betas are really big on further education. Four and five actually participating in online online um, learning, which was huge. Um, the betas want to be seen as innovative. That came up a lot throughout the study. However, it's best described as safe innovation, um, which means they do heaps more research online than other cohorts. And then they end up going with a brand more likely than they already knew. And they're happy to pay more for that brand. The T stands for technology. Look, for many professionals, the early 2000 was an inflection point in their career, but for this particular audience, it was actually their starting point. So they've grown up with all this technology. We call them the LinkedIn generation because it has been around for 19 years. But also to put this into context, this time for the first time ever, the smartphone has now overtaken desktop and laptop Desktop and laptop is the number one workplace device for this audience, which is huge. They love their smartphones. In fact, um, over a year period, they're spending an additional 550 hours uh, on their smartphones compared to older cohorts. And lastly, but not least, A is for activism. As consumers, betas demand brands take action on social justice issues. Well, the same really tro- holds true now for our betas in business. And in fact, 67% would pay more for a sustainable, eco-friendly product. So that is basically it in a nutshell. So this is a global study, right, Lara? So this, this, this is going across 10 markets and the behaviours are the same across these markets with some nuances, particularly for the Australians anyway, right? So it's the same thing we're seeing globally. So Lucy Green, I want to um, get your take on this. You're approaching 40. Now, it's dangerous to name someone's age. I just did. But you're a self-declared millennial and you're 40. Um, That's almost crazy. Uh, But why do these beaters, you've been working on the study, you've written the report, why do these beaters really matter? And give us maybe three or four critical observations here about this group that B2B marketers have to get their heads strategy and brands around and i do say beta i think you say beta sorry but that's the reality i'm old oh no i, I say beta but um, oh jo- but, okay yeah so we're on the page same page <laughs> no it's really it's really interesting you know as someone who's worked in trend forecasting and brand strategy for nearly 20 years now i've been looking and talking about i feel like the millennials as the quote unquote you know youth market and um, the ultimate like youth consumer market and their wants needs and granular attitudes to everything um for lifestyle brands and whatever and i think you know uh, again there's this sort of backed up perception that this group are still in their youth and well i mean 40 is youthful i like to think i'm still youthful but um but you know 
it, what's be, what's being lost or, or perhaps is surprising to people is that this group is heading into senior positions. Mm, right. And so they're a decade that have been raised on disruption, on technology, on new direct-to-consumer brands, on on-demand products. And now they're in positions of authority and leadership and they're having a big influence on decision-making, but they're carrying in that whole um, decade, um, more than a decade, of consumer brand and product disruption into the B2B decision-making process. Right. Um, one of the most interesting things about that, I think, is, is as, as Laura mentioned, the role of um, professionalism in their personal brand. Like, they are the LinkedIn generation, as she mentioned. Um, you know, so they, for the longest time after 2008, making your sort of professional identity was... was it's, such, it's become such a part of your personal identity that self-improvement, trying to be better, trying to self-actualize through um, not only being your, you know, um, your professional space, but sort of your intellectual and, and connection to thought leadership has become really important to this group. So um, we see that actually flow through into the research as, as this group uh, say they prioritize opportunities to learn more, to connect, to feel like they're improving all the time. Um, but just generally this idea of like your yeah your professional your professional and your personal brand are just completely intertwined for this group and that really has implications for b2b marketing what does that mean in you know the next uh, how, how b2b or how companies go to uh, market well a couple of things one is the kind of incentives that might market that, that might appeal to them rather so right. um, if it was a work lunch before or building long relationships with this group before I think the kinds of incentives that appeal to this group are opportunities to connect to network, to get better at the job, maybe to do a micro certification, maybe to um, meet um, mentors. Um, you know, so I thought it's really interesting. Uh, a few tech companies, so for example, Salesforce during the pandemic, were hosting a number of online events. Um, one with Sheryl Crow, where you got you could listen to it was how to be a better leader, and then it finished with a, a music performance. So right. we're going to see a lot of disruption in terms of the, the incentives that are provided to this group. Um, which which is interesting, but we're also seeing, as I think you mentioned earlier, um, one of the biggest shifts is that you're seeing the B2B category, given this sort of blurred way of living that this group is very is very intuitive to this group. Um, the way that B2B products need to be marketed in both form, product, language, um, the way they're served up, the, the platforms that they use, is moving much more towards the sort of emulating the consumer space. So sort of like consumer type language, consumer type distinctive branding, commissioning creative agencies, um, really sort of aligning more with the, the leaders of the consumer space and um, to seem relevant and seem visible and important to this group. That's really big. That's a really big change for B2B marketing full stop though, isn't it, Lucy? That sort of, sort of mindset shift of what's been done, you know, hitherto. Absolutely. And, and as Laura mentioned, that's only accelerated during the pandemic because you have people working from home, making B2B decisions from home, essentially. Um, Sundar Pichai from, from Google talked about how there's actually really no de- like no difference between a B2B consumer and a consumer anymore, or at least there's a million iterations in between. You know, you have people um, buying, um, uh, upgrading to professional versions of MailChimp or all these plugins, you know, um, upgrading to professional LinkedIn. Um, and like so, and, and what constitutes even what the, what a business is is becoming a lot more fragmented with with side hustles and so on with this group as well. That's another important factor. So, what con- what constitutes a business purchase is becoming much more fragmented and more aligned with with like what a consumer purchase is and and from size of commitment to um, how it's used. 
Um, so I think that's going to become even more prevalent going forward. Just to be clear here, something like 50% or higher are influencing B2B purchasing decisions now, right? So it's not like it's coming, it's here now, Lucy, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is that we found in the data that what is sort of being seen as a, like, I guess, a, a, a latent set of behaviours and attitudes in the older end of the spectrum that we looked at only became more pronounced as you went younger. So every single one of the behaviours that we're talking about in the beta research is only becoming more of an expectation and more of a behaviour among the, the younger groups. So it's going to become more of a dominant force in B2B as we, as we uh, progress. Fascinating. I'm going to come back to a couple of themes you talked about, but Ray Kloss, welcome. Um, you're all in on this uh, on the speeder thing at Cisco, aren't you? You've, you've sort of been beating a similar drum for a few years. What's most important uh, for you, Ray, in this research for B2B marketers? What stands out? And, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you've been up to. Thanks so much. Look, we are very all in on betas at Cisco. And I guess what I'd love to say to the B2B marketers, first and foremost, get your hands on this research. I really encourage it because there's so much complexity in it. You know, we're we're skimming over the top of it and doing it very elegantly right now. But um, if you're analytical, you really get into this report because I think that there's some eye-opening changes. But I guess, you know, what's the most important thing? If I was going to sum this all up, betas are after authenticity. They're really after authenticity. And there's an expression that I, I love to say in marketing, we should say what the facts are and let your audience assign the adjectives. And brand marketing is more important than ever. Um, but most, to me, the most single important thing is this research highlights that this is a very authentic generation. If you want to call it a generation, it feels like there's a couple of generations in there, but they're very authentic. And so for instance, you know, drop all of the we're great, we're number one, all of that kind of, of marketing language and really get into the details of what the company is doing. I'll give you a real example. Yeah. Um, we're doing a lot of work around circular economy, right? It's very important. If you know, if, if you look at the A in activist and you look at you know making the world a better place and the planet we can live in, it's important. So instead of going out and saying, hey, we're Cisco, we're circular economy, our campaign actually goes out and talks about very explicitly what we're doing in our supply chain. So then the audience can decide, is that enough? Rather than saying, we're doing a great job. So this is this is a, a highly quizzical, research-driven group that wants to know what's really going on behind the scenes. They want to know the how, the why, the what. And in my experience, when we give that to them, they really engage deeply in the marketing and the content and eventually in, in the product. Well, I was going to ask, Ray, I mean, you talk about uh, the, the authenticity uh, that is being sought here and you're, you're on, this, on this train. How are you seeing evidence? It's working for you, clearly. How do you prove that? What is, what is the company seeing in relation to that strategic shift you're making? Look, we, we made this shift to, to marketing really to this type of, of audience and these types of issues with our Bridge to Possible campaign, which we've had in market now for a couple of years. And what I would tell you is our, our brand scores are improving. Our response and demand generation is improving. So, you know, without going into the confidential metrics of the campaigns, I really recommend that we're experiencing that this works. This is how people want to be engaged. 
Now, Ray, a couple of times you've mentioned brand, which is slightly unusual for a B2B marketer to bang on about brand investment when it's when a lot of B2B is still very performance and demand generation. Um, historically, it's it's sort of had the, the lion's share of budgets. Cisco has quite a story here. You've got quite a story in how you've sort of shifted your thinking and your actions to more brand investment. Tell us what's going on there and why. Look, first, one of the one of the big call-outs is a B2B purchase is usually quite complex. The number of buyers involved in the decision is multiplying all the time. It's just growing. And actually, frankly, you know, call out to LinkedIn. They've done some great research in the last couple of years around how the buying decision is almost a quantum mechanics decision rather than a linear. You know, there's a there's a pretty clear call out that the funnel is dying, if not already dead, and if not dead for quite a long time. And so in that world where people are moving around the decision cycle and they're doing it in a nonlinear fashion, it becomes so much more important who you're buying from and why you're buying from them as much as what you're buying. And so that's something we can see. We, we do a lot of data analysis in Cisco around when are people on our website, when are people purchasing, what's happening in the pipeline. And quite frankly, what we find is the more people engage deeply in the content, far more likely they are to move through to the purchase decision. But increasingly, they're not moving through in a linear fashion. And when they're not moving through in a linear fashion, brand becomes king. And and brand at a deep level, it's not just saying, hey, here's Cisco, here's our logo. Who are we? What do we stand for? What are we doing? How did this product get made, et cetera? And so you've been doing that for two years. Uh, Was it a difficult thing to shift the company to because, you know, demand gen and performance, as we as we say, is really strong in B2B. Was there much of a tussle internally, Ray, to get there? We were very lucky. This is a top leadership right through the organization. You know, so we had a leader. It wasn't like we were from the bottom trying to push up saying, hey, we should do more brand. It was really right through the leadership that this was something we need to move on. And I'll be frank, when when you see the results, you know, oftentimes people worry about the you know, is our sales and marketing working as a team? And in my experience, what both sides want is results. And we've been able to show, because we're data-driven, we're able to show how this is really working. So there's no issue as long as you've got the data to show the results. So no, it's top-down, through and through, bottom-up, data-driven. It's It's been quite a great journey. And so with your communications, at least, and, you know, the, the, the concept you've already said, the concept of brand goes much deeper than just, hey, look at us, we're great, we're doing something um, that's, that's sort of a meaningful and depth to it but when you when you in your executions is there literally brand style uh content and communications and then you have your call to action direct response stuff or do you blend it together they're blended and actually look at great I, you know i love i love the way we we chat about this first thing i'd say to all the marketers don't say you're great tell tell right. this audience what it is you do let them decide if you're great don't tell them you're great because they really are alienated by that kind of marketing but in our experience what we do is we start i would say that we start more at the who we are what we are what we're doing where this came from but blended into that we're always giving the links to hey the next level because you know, I think there's a great secret in the A of the betas. The A's, the A says activists do something. And so the a great way to, to connect with these people is to say, we're doing some cool things to make the world a better place. Here's what they are. And here's how you can get involved in it. So betas very much want to get involved. And that's the way to think about it is, you know, here's my offering. This is what we're doing. You know, this is what we're doing to connect people this is something you could enable in your organization or in your scope of influence. So for us, it's always that kind of invitation and onboarding 
to a different way of doing things. And we find that's a really successful way to get people engaged. I guess the authentic to the bit though, Ray, is that you've, you, the company worked on some stuff before you went out and told everyone what you were doing, right? So there was some sort of action first before you told, I'm assuming. Oh, I would tell you, we, we completely refreshed the product line. We completely rethought supply chain. Um, yes, we very much changed authentically what we do and what we offer. And then we started talking about it. I'm going to get to Sam in two seconds, but Ray, one of the things that I, I find interesting with with the uh, with the beta research is, even though um, it's sort of uh, Lucy's age, sort of 2040, I should say, and down, I find I share a lot of the, the those values, and I'm like literally much older. So um, how how does that work? Is there, is there much a there's a there's a sort of a segmentation based around demos or age? Uh, but also some of us old older cats are still that way inclined. Um, is there does it breach beyond the forties, Ray? In your view, this this whole way of approaching um, uh, beaters and B two B marketing? Look, absolutely. And one of the reasons for that is the leaders. Where you have leaders who are, let's say, of a you know they've just been on the planet longer than forty years, leaders of that age, they know that. It's the betas who are all in their teams, right? Everybody's leading, by and large, the vast majority of people you're leading at the individual contributor level are at this level. And if you're a leader who's looking to inspire and drive engagement, you know, the secret of leadership is engaging your people. So the leaders are coming to it as well. You know, in many cases, they're just as passionate about what I often find frankly, with the more senior people is they're just as passionate. They just don't talk about it as much. Right, um, right. Where the betas are much more vocal, having grown up in a more social media environment. But the senior leaders, they do care, but they also know that it will inspire their people if they engage this way. Lucy, can I ask, um, are older people allowed to be in this beta set like me? Am I allowed to get in there somehow? Or what is that blurring that, you know, there's that blurring? I know that you, you I'm being deliberately cheeky, but um, how, how does it sort of bleed through to, to a, to, to the the further up the food chain or older food chain. Yeah, no, I and and just to be clear, like it's um, we sort of identify this generation as sort of change makers, but that's like that's not to say it's not influencing um, other generations. Quite opposite, quite the opposite. Like you know, so if you look at the, the last ten years of behaviour, what would happen is a millennial might adopt Instagram, and then your parents might, or you might, you know, a millennial might adopt Uber. But they've had basically multi generational influence in trends in a way that we're now seeing with Generation Z. Yes, I've lived in America too long, and the teenagers are now starting to have multi generational influence in terms of digital behaviors. So they probably represent the the uh, I guess the uh, wider adoption of things, but that's not to say that they are, are alone. They're sort of influencing wider beha- behaviour across generations as as well. Um, so, Sam, sorry, took a long long time to get to you, but I'm really interested in your perspective. Lara, Ray and Lucy have all talked about sort of uh, what's going on and that sort of macro trend of B2B marketing and, and the rise of brand and that tussle between performance and demand generation. Uh, in, in your view, how does Australia compare internationally around this sort of B2C influence strategy uh, that we're seeing um, at least some of the, the uh, lead B2B marketers taking on. What's your take on that? Yeah, sure. It's um, it's a pretty big question, uh, but I and I could and I could talk about it for days. Um, but I think uh, you know, for the purpose of the podcast, uh, there are kind of two key areas that I want to discuss in terms of that influence of consumer um, on B2B, and particularly from an Australian lens. Um, and it's a bit of a common th- theme, as you have have touched on, um, and everybody has spoken about this. But it comes down 
to branding and experience. Um, and I think this is a real shift in Australia, um, who as a market have uh, historically largely focused B2B investments, um, which is pretty tight uh, on driving lead generation, you know, getting contacts into the, into the ecosystem at scale. Um, and what we've also historically seen is, you know, some of the large global brands have really relied on global to get that brand coverage in the past. But what we're seeing uh, is that if the if that's the focus, there's a real massive drop off in terms of conversion because there is no focus on driving brand advocacy, and there's a real disconnect in translating that global brand brand platform into what resonates in Australia. And this sort of extends off what Ray was talking about. In Australia, you know, a branding message doesn't mean tell them you're great. That just doesn't resonate in this market. So if we're talking about branding, uh, you know, this shift has really been driven by those that blurring of B2C and B2B mindsets. Um, and Lara sort of touched on this earlier. Um, you know, there's a big, big glaring stat in the research for Australia. 89% of this beta cohort uh, check emails outside of work. Um, and I think this is really important just to help set the scene. And it kind of smacks you in the face. You know, the workday has officially been disrupted. There isn't a clear, clear delineation between work and life. And our audience are constantly consuming information and advertising. And so with this blur, uh, you know, business services and brand selection is increasingly influenced by that consumer preference. So branding is so important. Um, but, you know, I think B2B branding, um, and again, even in Australia, um, has always been seen as being a bit beige. Uh, and so, like, now's the time, particularly when we want to engage this beta audience, is, you know, to achieve that cut through and to gain that attention, you really need to think outside of what those normal parameters are of B2B marketing. Um, and Lucy sort of touched on this earlier around, uh, you know, ensuring that we take cues from, on, from what has been effective in lifestyle brands, you know, design and vision visuals are really important, you know, be bold, don't be beige, um, and look for those opportunities to really meaningfully or sort of, uh, I, I guess, cleverly blend that B2B and B2C. Um, again, you know, Lucy sort of touched on the fact that, you know, from a, a work conference or a, a B2B conference perspective, you know, with Cheryl Crow, it's this notion of edutainment, which is, is really going to drive that um, impact. The second thing, and I'm going to be quite quick on this, um, but in terms of how B2C influence strategies are, are really coming into B2B uh, comes down to experience. Uh, and this really comes to life, I think, from the, the T component of the beaters, right? Being being tech, being tech native, sorry. Um, you know, this audience in Australia spend more time on mobile than any other age cohort. That equates to 550 hours more a year. Um, and the platform, so mobile has for the first time overtaken uh, all other platforms uh, from a work context as well. Um, and so I think, you know, working in B2B in Australia, we've been talking about mobile first strategies for years, but it still has never really been at the forefront. We can't do that anymore. You know, that just has to change. Um, and I think, you know, that translates into strategy in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, these seamless 
interchangeable user experience across uh, devices is expected. Um, and I think this is something that I resonate with quite uh, profoundly as well. Um, you know, I often catch myself being unnecessarily irate when I can't uncover the information that I want when I want it uh, in, and in the environment that I'm in, and whether that is in a business context or in a personal context. Um, and I think, you know, it's even down to things such as filling out details in forms. You know, I'm not opposed to filling out uh, filling out information in forms if it's going to have that value exchange. But where I will have a drop off is if that form experience is, you know, if people don't use a non-smartphone, for example, if you actually have to type in your business details, your address um, and all of those uh, details, as opposed to the having predictive text or a really short form field selection, um, you know, that really detracts from what that experience looks like. What's interesting here, though, is um, both, I know you've been working with LinkedIn on this beta research in Australia. Two questions for you. One is, on the brand front, what is the sorts of pushback or the resistance or the questions you get uh, as a B2B agency amongst clients around uh, why should we do brand if you've been in performance and demand generation? What comes back at you as to why there is reluctance in Australia to do that? And then the second part, well, let's answer that one first. I won't load you up too much. Yeah, so uh, there is a reluctance on investing in brand um, due to being able to measure its impact. And it comes down to a real difference between measuring short-term impact versus long-term impact. Um, and so, you know, there has been a historical notion and a real uh, focus on demand generation because it's tangible. You know, business uh, marketers can report back to their business leaders in quantifiable numbers how many contacts they are delivering into the ecosystem or, um, you know, how many MQLs they have been able to deliver to their sales team. That's a really tangible number uh, and it works at a short-term level in terms of being able to prove the effectiveness or the, the importance of marketing. However, that's a really short-term mindset um, and, you know, as we've discussed today and as the research shows, uh, that has a, a shelf life and there's going to be a drop-off and by not focusing on brand and not building up that advocacy, particularly amongst this, this beta audience, you're not going to receive that conversion. Um, and so it's, it's about shifting the, the priorities or the focus or how we're sort of going back to, to business leaders and showing the impact of branding on the long term. Um, and it's about sort of, I guess, safeguarding and protecting that funnel of the future, right? Um, it's around like really driving that, that brand advocacy across uh, multiple stages as opposed to just focusing on that, um, that number of generating short-term results. Right, and so it sounds like there's, there's another discussion really on what you measure and how you measure it uh, in that context, Sam. We, we won't get there today. But the other bit I wanted to sort of get a, a bit of a, a check, a sense check with you on is that I'm assuming you've had some early briefings around this beta research uh, from LinkedIn with clients. Is it resonating? Do they understand what's going on here? Is it is it landing? Hundred um, percent. I think you know as as um, you know again we've touched on it's it's such a solid piece of research to actually just bring to life um, and hit you in the face what these change behaviours are of this beta group. It's very rare that you get a research 
piece that is so comprehensive um, at a global level that really takes into account like other markets outside of the US as well, which I think is is what has resonated really well. Uh, you know, there's such a large sample size of um, Australians in this research, which means that, you know, we can't just, you know, cover our eyes and pretend that this isn't going to, to impact us as a market down here. Uh, you know, it's making us as B2B marketers and as a B2B collective really lean in and listen to what the research is saying um, and really start to think about disrupting your B2B marketing strategies because um, we can't keep going in the way that we've been going in the past. Now on this beta research, um, Lara, you raised an interesting um, observation or some data that came out of the study which um, Australians are surprisingly more conservative than their global peers on some fronts. I think risk uh, was one of them. Talk us through how that works because you know typically they're brash and quite painful sometimes Australians. Yeah that was a bit of a shock for us I think the stat was that we see Australians being more conservative with tech experimentation so 38% um, comparative to 56% globally Um, and I think it kind of goes back to that safe innovation that we talked about earlier this need for reassurance Um, that this cohort has. So they want to be seen as innovative, but the truth be told is that that they're really quite, you know, focused on how they're kind of building their careers. They want to have, you know, what they want to see, you know, they want to be successful. They want to make sure that they're ticking all the right boxes. So for me, kind of that point was really interesting and it comes back to, God, I hate to say it, but the importance of the branding, that, that they understand that this is a reputable brand. There's great case studies, there's reviews, there's endorsements, because that's the stuff that they kind of want to tick the box before they move ahead with a new... Just to be clear there, Lara, when you talk about a careful or a reluctance um, or a lower appetite for tech experimentation, is that in a business context or in their personal context? It's in a business context. Gee, well, the, that's that's even more concerning. I think it, it's not concerning if we know how to action it. In that, you know, knowing that, I talked about it, they're huge spending time researching vendors online. They're maybe not going to necessarily pick up the phone and have the discussion that perhaps older cohorts did. So how are you showing up in the online space? As I said before, reviews, endorsements, these are things that are absolutely critical for this cohort to really understand that they're making a safe choice. Yes, they want to be innovative as much as possible, but they also want that safety in that they've chosen a proven performer, a brand that they know. And again, to go back to that original kind of piece of research, they're happy to pay more for that as well. So, yeah. Yeah, Sam, Sam, the conservativeness uh, that that in this market, do you see that? Yeah, so it's, it's actually something that we've been discussing for forever. I think it's almost intrinsic into the Australian culture. You know, we kind of have this she'll be right mentality. Um, and it's something that, you know, we talk about uh, with, with our clients across the agency and this, you know, in a more broader context, if we're, if we're uh, looking outside of the, the beta group as well. Um, but, you know, when we're thinking about reaching and converting the Australian audience, it doesn't mean that they're opposed to change, but they do need to have these proof points. And so we've always been talking about the importance of localised case studies. When we're talking about the beta audience, however, it's sort of um, that approach on on steroids, essentially, uh, because this this cohort are consuming so much content um, to make their decisions, as Lara spoke about. Um, And so there's a real need uh, for marketers to 
really generate that trust leadership amongst this group um, and, you know, have a proliferated content strategy that is going to provide that justification and, um, you know, I guess um, confirmation that, that, that they're making the right decision. Right, that conservatism, conservatism uh, in Australia, does that surprise you? Paul, we find that Australia, the Australian market can actually be quite an early adopter in a lot of the technologies that Cisco offers. Mm. Truthfully, um, you know, there's things that are going on in our on our telcos and our service providers that are leading the world. Um, oftentimes, we're doing case studies in Australia for technology adoptions that lead the world. Truthfully, like we'll do case studies on you know major customers here, and we wind up using those around the world. So. I think we want to be careful about a com- the comparison between a conservative mentality and an, um, an aggressive adoption of technology, right? So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you have to look at it. I, I kind of joked when I first moved out here in 1993, you know, people in America don't line up to take that off-ramp on the freeway the way that Australians do. Like Australians are very polite, you know, drivers, they, oh my God, retail, you know, we all know the stories around online retail in Australia versus the rest of the world, you know, we're catching up in those areas. So I do believe that in this beta research, you've got a blurring of B2C and B2B mentalities, but in our own experience for technology, the actual action of adopting um, actually pretty aggressive in Australia and pretty ahead of the curve often. Uh, well, we, we're clearly an enigma there um, in that. And Lucy, do you have any thoughts on that, on, on the Australian way, but from far, far away in New York? Um, I mean, just as a layman, um, I went to Australia when I was in my 20s and I backpacked up the West Coast. So I would say my direct professional experience is sort of limited aside from consulting a few brands for a few brands in Australia. But generally that sort of, uh, I, I agree with that, that sentiment is it's, the, the nuance is not aggressively early adopting versus being deeply conservative is what, what I would say. Could I just only add that I think if you think about the fact that Cisco has done such a fantastic job on the brand, that, that perhaps that makes it easier. That's, you know, I'm just making the assumption here that the finding that, you know, when it, Cisco is coming out with that new product, they've done the work in the building that brand, that then the audience, you know, the buyers are feeling more comfortable to move ahead with that particular new product because of their overall branding position that Cisco has. Ray, what's your key thoughts on takeouts and watchouts for the next 12 months around beaters and B2B marketing? What's your what's your kind of big advice to, to your peers out there? I guess my big advice, Paul, to my peers would be tell your authentic story. For, I've got probably two points I'd make. Number one, tell your authentic story because this is a group of people who not only want to read it, they have to read it. And if they don't read it, they won't purchase. So tell your authentic story, leave out the adjectives, really get into what you do. My second one would be, you know, we talked a bit about brand versus demand gen. Let me just put a hard line in this. Brand, You're doing brand when over 50% of your budget is on brand. That's when you're doing brand. Because I often find in B2B, people will say, oh, I'm doing brand, I'm doing brand. How much? Five, 10, 15, right? right? It's 50, 60 and north of that. That's when your organization is doing brand. But I got to say, Ray, that would be horrifying to a number of B2B marketers to hear that 50% on brand. What do you say? Just do it. <laughs> do a Nike. Oh, no, the reason I'll tell you that, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of a, a number of the thought leaders in marketing in Australia and, and somebody I've got a lot of time for, he always says, Look at your budget percentages and that tells you what you're doing. 
Mm. Right. And most of the time when you strip back on a B2B marketing budget, you really look at what you're doing and you got to look at your people costs as well. And you'll find that a lot of people have the majority of their budget on demand gen because that's what they've done historically. And in this world, this beta world that we moved in, especially pan post pandemic. And I guess while this was the thing I would say to encourage the listeners, when we make sure that that brand story is involved ahead of our demand generation, the demand generation goes through the roof. The response rates are totally different. You know, I think Laura touched on that really well. It is a very different story um, as far as results, right? So get, because the thing I always find is people think they're doing brand and they're not. You know, it's that kind of view of, oh yeah, no, I'm healthy. And, you know, then you actually go and write down everything you're doing and you're like, wow, I'm not healthy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So get serious, get serious about the numbers, right? So Lucy, we, we've we've talked about sort of, you've talked at length really about uh, how beaters are forcing a shift into, into B2C marketing. Um, Ray's story around Cisco's positioning, uh, is that the new playbook for many in B2B, do you think? Should they be adopting that or is there something else? Uh, is, there, is there others, other ways? And maybe a couple of thoughts on um, examples, case studies that you've seen of it happening other parts of the world. I think you talk about, for instance, in the UK, there's a lot of creative agencies that are getting into B2B now as a, as a sort of a signal of where, where it could be going. But that Cisco playbook, is that is that is that the playbook? Yeah, I would say increasingly it, it is. And, um, you know, I think basically uh, brands are really starting to think of themselves when, if even if they're in a purely B2B space but or, or in a B2B2C space, um, starting to think about themselves as consumer brands. And be, the way we see that uh, manifest in the most extreme way is in design. So they're commissioning creative agencies and really thinking about right like how can we create a really distinctive identity how can we um seem cool and design has become synonymous with relevance so you know you look at a brand like mailchimp for example um or we transfer really being sort of making great pains to not only be distinctive but connect with the creative space and seem it's become synonymous of being basically a relevant brand um, and that, that to me started with Silicon Valley, like Silicon Valley, um, one by one has picked off categories, um, and, um, completely disrupted the way that those were sold and marketed. So, you know, so being more design centric, making things productized and flexible where you can pick off three different packages and very, um, like I said, sort of very flexible. You can switch them on or off as, as you see, and that's becoming a new expectation. So this, the way that you might buy a cable package or adjust your Netflix um, subscription is now being translated into B2B. Um, so you know, Silicon Valley started off with consumer products doing that, and then it moved into finance, and we've seen it in healthcare. They've sort of de-institutionalized in how these products show up, and that's now happening in 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 pretty much every B2B category. I mean, I, I as part of this research was looking at. Um, various different case studies from construction to um, chemical plants to um, office spaces, creating a brand. You know, you see a lot of office spaces now. So it's not just productivity tools. It's not just technology tools. You know, so it's the reason why offices now, knowing that there isn't like a 10-year guaranteed contract, they're starting to think of themselves as brands and calling themselves things like the Whitby and having these very moody hotel-like or, you know, lifestyle-like websites. Um, and I think it is, that is also linked to this idea of the blurred identity of the beta, as in 
they want to feel like they're buying a brand that is relevant and aspirational. Um, and it also speaks to, I think, in an atmosphere where they're consuming a lot of B2B products in the digital space, um, it's how these brands are showing up in their digital environment. And so you're seeing brands being also more creative in the kind of assets they commission. So uh, commissioning what we would call dynamic assets. Like, so it's not just one logo in navy blue, which is what it might have been before and fairly institutional, maybe gray, uh, switching it up. Um, it's like, right, how can we create a meme? How can we create a logo or an identity that can exist in multiple forms on social media? on banner ads, how can we, you know, we're seeing some really interesting examples of merchandise, um, some quite unexpected examples of merchandise, um, for example, and just overall more investment and consideration in how brands appear. Um, and it's, it's even become a B2B PR story, I would say. I mean, look at the rebranding of MasterCard recently. I mean, I know MasterCard is both business and, and consumer, but we've seen Coots Bank as well. Um, which is both business and consumer banking, really, um, you know, uh, like taking quite a lot of risk in terms of like becoming, looking and feeling more like a lifestyle brand. Right, and it's really interesting you say that. I mean, I was literally talking to the ANZ Bank uh, marketing team the other day and they were talking about how not only with the CMO, well, the CMO was appointed at the same time as the bank created a chief design officer. And there's a really good example of how, you know, uh, user experience and user design and, and the aesthetics are coming even into the to the to the finance sector, if you like. So I'm, I'm really interested, um, Lucy, in uh, everything you talk about. For me, it's probably slightly too critical, but... Uh, someone said earlier in the podcast, you know, B2B can be so beige and that's what I see it so often as just it sort of goes over the top because it's, it's doesn't, it doesn't engage or doesn't cut through. So when you're starting to have these conversations even around design and having a person, it's about brands having a personality almost really, you know, it's kind of like an, and maybe a personality that we like as opposed to something that's, you know, avoiding staying under the, under the, under the radar. But do B2B marketers that you talk to globally when you talk about this stuff, do they get threatened or do they feel challenged about this because it's a whole different way of thinking and doing uh, or do they get excited about it and I guess it depends whether you're talking to a beta or not yeah I think there's a general uh, excitement because there's no rules anymore I think it's giving way to a lot of creativity um, and and with this like I said this blurred consumer and blurred idea of a business like the market for b2b is expanding as a result of this you know um, you can be a one person business for your you know, your side hustle and have a Squarespace website and have a Shopify plugin, like the barriers to entry to setting up a business are, are lowering. And therefore, what is considered a B2B buyer is, is, is only broadening. Like this essentially can open up audiences for you rather than keeping them quite limited to quite a specific channel within, within businesses. Um, also, and as I mentioned earlier, like even if, uh, it, so we are seeing older millennials and older beaters reaching leadership positions, but I think also the decision-making process is changing within organisations as well, where it's it's more layered and more cumulative. And these consu- these techniques that are sort of slightly more consumer-centric, like I'd say like an Adobe Max, let's say, where you get to like go and meet other creators, it's a way of creating a sort of groundswell of buy-in um, that can also have a sort of softer cumulative impact. So there's, there's a lot of benefits and opportunities in this shift as well. 
Well, look, I've held held you all too long. Let's get. We're going to close this up with a wrap up from each of you on 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 sort of the takeout or a watch out for the next twelve months. Um, Lara, to you first. What in, in terms of B two B marketing, beaters? What's happening in this market in the Australian market uh, in the next year? What's your what's your key uh, takeouts there for what we should be thinking about? Okay, so well, we've talked a lot about brand today, but uh, you know the reality is there's only a few doing it really well in this in this market. Um, so widely, I think we could say it's not great. Um, I'd like to see more creative agencies really taking that opportunity to step up, um, to get pumped about B2B and think about, you know, as Sam says, less beige kind of content. I think it's a huge opportunity and we just haven't seen, you know, that engagement with the creative agencies here in this market. So I'd love a call out now to all the creative agencies out there to kind of get in contact with us if they want to kind of get into learn a little bit more about this research. Get your act together, and I do. It's a true. It's true in that I, even in, even on LinkedIn, which I clearly use a bit, when you see something decent, it stands out because there's a lot of beige uh, as you go through your feed. So there's there's a call to action from someone who knows nothing like me. Sam, your your take on what's the big key themes for the next twelve months for B two B marketers to be thinking about, and 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 particularly around the beta research. Yeah, look, I think it comes down to the factors we've discussed. The typical workday has been massively disrupted, but I don't think we as marketers have necessarily fully disrupted our marketing to align to this. So for the next 12 months or the sort of the the, the focus, particularly um, in engaging with this audience, it's disrupt your day parting strategy. Like when, when and where are you uh, engaging with this audience? Disrupt, disrupt the formats that you are pushing out into market and disrupt the tone, you know, move away from that institutionalized language um, and really think about being human and relevant and inspirational for this audience group. Good points. And Lucy, I know we've heard lots from you, but we've got uh, your final words of wisdom for those people down here, down under. Well, it's, yeah, it's very talkative for 9.07pm New York time. Yes, well done. I mean, one thing I would say is that, you know, on that on the B point, right, the blurred issue, um, I think for a long time, uh, the beaters or the particularly elder millennials have like completely embraced that blurred or pleasureite as um, you can take the girl out of trend forecasting, but you, you can't, you know, all, all of that. So I think a long time for a long time, especially in the post recession climate, which don't forget is when this group hit the workplace, that idea of blurring business and leisure and working weekends and side hustle and hackathons and all of that sort of culture espoused by Silicon Valley generally, where you live at the office, the hence we have these Google, the 15 pounds at Google because you're eating the Google buffet all the time. I think in the last year, we've seen a real reckoning with that and especially with people working from home all the time. And so when you're thinking about the kind of incentives, right, like I do think self-employment, uh, sorry, self-improvement um, rather is going to continue to be important for this group. But I think increasingly they're going to want things like privacy, mindfulness, mental health. So in addition to self-improvement, I think a brand should start to think about when they're thinking about marketing engagement, events or services that they might bake into marketing. Um, it, they should start to think about things like mental health, about emotional health, about time off, privacy, well-being. And, and, and that could be really interesting territory to appeal to this group as they start to really try to delineate between work and home. 
Well, to Sam's point, that's you know, it's all very disruptive thinking and necessary. And and look, I think we could keep going, but I can't. I've got to let you all go. So Lucy Green, Ray Kloss, Samantha Cunliffe, Lara Brownlow, great to talk. I think we'll um, we, we definitely need a six month update on whether this stuff, what's going on with beaters in Australia, and I, I look forward to it. So thanks for joining. Stay safe. Thanks so much. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.